to Musonomics. I'm Larry Miller from the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt. There were all these these exciting acquisitions. There was this money coming into the industry suggesting that there was um, institutional view that this was a, an asset class worth worth investing in. But like nobody had really set out to say, well, what does what streaming's value in this? What what had streaming done to actually change the way the economics work? That's Garrett Levin, now in his fourth year as chief of DEMA, the Digital Media Association, which represents the big music streaming companies. He's been on Capitol Hill for many years, worked as a litigator at Jenner and Block, and is an award-winning documentary filmmaker. But at the height of the pandemic in 2020, Garrett and I started talking about how streaming impacted value in the music industry. Well, I had already been thinking about it over the previous several years as billions of dollars in new capital poured into the music industry to buy music catalogs. You know, buckets of music rights from individual songwriters, music publishers, and record labels. Over the last decade, on-demand streaming, what we do now on Spotify and other services, grew from almost nothing to about 85% of revenue in the U.S. recorded music business last year. But how had streaming actually impacted value, what investors were willing to pay? And how had streaming changed how successful records perform over time? Those were interesting questions, and the resulting Musonomics report dropped this week. You can download it for free at musonomics.com, and some of the results may surprise you. Garrett and I chatted about the report, and we kind of interviewed each other about my work, which we did with support from DEMA. But first, a fun fact. Way back at the beginning of the digital music era, I had a hand in starting DEMA when I was at AT AT&T Labs Research and worked on an early digital music distribution project, A to B Music. But today, DEMA represents Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Pandora, and YouTube. I asked Garrett why these streaming giants need music advocacy in Washington. You know, a large part of it has to do with the fact that the rules of the road for this industry still require a lot of navigating, still require a lot of figuring out. We saw this not too long ago before my time at at DEMA with the passage of the Music Modernization Act. The fact remains that licensing music is a challenging proposition, and it is challenging in large part because we have built a system of laws and policies over a period of a century in where we've kind of cobbled together the rules as technology evolved. Music has the the good fortune and sometimes the bad fortune of being essentially always at the bleeding edge of technological innovation. Nowadays in, in digital transmission, it's largely due to the fact that music is is transmissible in a very small file size. So if you're trying to figure out something new to do on the internet, um, often music becomes the test case for it. And underlying all of that, though, is the simple fact that music still needs to be licensed in order to distribute it. And in many respects, what streaming has done is highlight some of the more complex and challenging nature of, of those licensing regimes. We continue to see it as new innovations come to market. So a lot of our work is focused on um, ensuring that the licensing regime, that the legal landscape makes sense in a mutually beneficial way. But also a lot of what we do these days is tell the story of streaming, what streaming is, what that role within the industry is, what it means 
um, not just from an economics perspective, but from a uh, music creation and distribution perspective. Um, so, you know, a lot of what it, people often think of, like our friends at the RAA and then MPA as just lobbying organizations, but the best trade associations uh, in DC are those that also spend a lot of time for lack of a better word, kind of like proselytizing about the benefits of the the industry that they represent and ensuring that that storytelling is... People in the industry may think of DEMA as a party whose interests are either negotiated or litigated as part of the rate-setting process at the CRB, at the Copyright Royalty Board. You had some big news not so long ago regarding the current CRB at which the the rates for, among other things, on-demand streaming were being set for the next five years. Can you describe what happened there? So the litigation, which I imagine was uh, fully planned and ready to go on both sides, on all sides, didn't happen. Instead, something else happened. What was that? Yeah, so um, we were able to announce uh, right at the uh, the end of August a settlement that was reached between the DEMA member companies, uh, NMPA, the National Music Publishers Association, and NSAI, the Nashville Songwriters Association International, to settle um, that case, in particular the rates paid uh, by streaming services for the, um, the mechanical license, which is the principal license, one of the two principal licenses that services need from publishers and songwriters for musical works to engage in streaming, the other being the public performance license. Yeah, incredibly exciting news. I spent the better part of my summer working on um, trying to bring that to fruition. I think all parties involved in it are incredibly excited, both about the settlement and the fact that it means that, yes, um, a trial that was supposed to start uh, the day after Labor Day uh, so just a week before that the uh, the settlement was filed, uh, that that's no longer going to happen. But also, I think more importantly than that, is it a sincere hope that it kind of takes us out of what has been, somebody told me that is that the time is actually eight years, eight years of kind of like constant battling over the rates for the prior term, the 2018 to 2022. Um, you know, we could spend an entire podcast talking about the statutory licensing regime and the copyright royalty board. But at the end of the day, I think what we saw in negotiating that, what we hope to see in the next five years is that a real desire to uh, embrace a, a shared future together between the, the publishing and songwriting community and the streaming service. So there's a lot of details within the settlement. The settlement's publicly available on the CRB's website, a lot of details in the regulations related to the rates that will be paid that have gone up. Um, further from what they were in for the 2022 period, details related to how bundles can be offered, um, things that I think really reflect, hopefully, a, a mutually beneficial outcome over the next handful of years that will allow for both parts of the industry here to cooperate, collaborate, and find 
new ways to engage and, and bring even more paying folks into the into the market. Gary, you sound like somebody who is authentically interested in building consensus. <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad I sound like that because I am that. It is sometimes something that I can find myself getting into a little bit of trouble with, not with my members, not with other folks in the industry, but my wife tends to call me to task for being like hopelessly optimistic. But I tend to believe that the more we are talking to each other, particularly in an industry like this, where we are fundamentally um, entirely reliant on each other. I firmly recognize, and I recognized when I took this job, that streaming services don't exist without music being created and being made available. I also, even more importantly than that, maybe, like, I love music. I, I love it. Uh, I have been a huge music fan my entire life. Um, before I was a lawyer, I edited documentaries that were primarily like historical documentaries about music, but also some concert films. Music is just like a part of me. And so I, I deeply value it and deeply appreciate it. I think I set out to, when I took this job, I set out to try to build consensus. I set out to try to build relationships. I spent a lot of my time talking to folks who maybe haven't necessarily been talked to historically in this context and um, hoping to find paths forward. Earlier this year, you did an op-ed for Billboard about uh, the state of play. I think it was in the spring. It was during a time when I imagine that you were anticipating another round of CRB litigation. And one of the things that you said in that billboard op-ed was that, yes, streaming is uh, continuing to grow. It's continuing to, uh, if I can paraphrase, be the rising tide that lifts all boats. There are lots of good things that are happening as a result of all that. And yet there are structural issues as old as the industry itself. What kinds of structural issues were you talking about? That op-ed was, was, you're right, it was inspired in part by some of the CRB stuff, but it's also inspired by, I think, the broader conversation that we're seeing throughout the industry, which I think, I don't think, it, it may have been in a prior piece, it may have been that piece I referred to as kind of the cognitive dissonance between what we see as um, incredible success at the the high level, right? We we look at the the numbers that are put out about the revenue being generated in the industry and being driven by streaming, and that they're the highest. I have to put in the caveat, or I'll get yelled at by my friends at the RIAA, uh, like highest non-adjusted for inflation that we've seen in in a long time, right? At the same time, we are also hearing incredibly vocal and I think increasingly vocal frustrations and criticisms from individual creators. We're also, of course, seeing incredible success stories at the individual creator level. And one of the things that I encourage us as an industry to be a little bit more honest about trying to tackle is how to square that circle, how to square the fact that we are seeing incredible double-digit year-over-year revenue growth at the top end. And we are also seeing and hearing, and we have no reason to disbelieve the points being raised by working songwriters and working artists, that it is harder and harder to make a living as a creator. At the same time, we also can see the incredible impact that that streaming and the reduction of legacy gatekeepers and the access and ease of access 
what that is doing to genres that maybe historically did not get the same kind of access. We see it in the rise of Latin music. We see it in the rise of Afro pop and Afro beats and like kind of the global exchange of music that streaming is making possible. But that comes with a the challenge that has always existed in the music industry, which is that there have always been uh, people who are more successful than others with a more competitive, more diffused landscape that I think continues to work, seems to work really, really well at scale and seems to still present challenges for those who as an individual don't operate at scale, right? Like that is always, I think I'm fairly confident in saying that has always been a challenge that the industry faces, right? The difference between how we look at it at the, at the scale and when you've aggregated a lot of rights or a large catalog or been incredibly successful versus the way any individual writer or artist looks at it with, which is, am I able to make a living doing what I feel I need to do and create this art. And so a lot of my point in that question about like the structural issues, that's not a criticism of any particular entity. It is what happens when you, to get like kind of academic for a second, it's what happens when you build commerce on top of artistic expression and the commerce is driven by amalgamating and aggregating rights versus like my desire to put out a song or a particular album. Um, and what I hope, one of the things that I am really hopeful for is that by settling the Phono Records 4 case, it will give us an opportunity and give us space to have some of those conversations. I don't pretend to have the answers to all of these questions. I probably don't even have all the questions, frankly. Um, but I think it's incumbent upon us as an industry, and I mean all of us, right, whether that's labels, streaming services, publishers, PROs, the representatives of the, the writers and the artists, to have some of those hard conversations over the coming years and, and recognize the problems that are being talked about from the writers and artists are not solvable simply by cutting larger and larger checks to the biggest rights holders, because that's what we've been doing over the past decade. Those checks have been getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The pie, as it is always talked about, is growing and the frustrations are growing with it. So are there things that we can be talking about that help uh, tackle some of those issues? When we first spoke, much of what was going on was we were beginning to see not even, you know, the beginning of large institutional investors starting to pour billions of dollars into the acquisition of music rights. That had been going on for several years. But that first discussion that we had was about how do you think about the impact that streaming has had in this business beyond what we all understand as the annual revenue growth from streaming-related sources from one year to the next in recorded music and music publishing. But there was a difference between counting revenue and actually understanding value. So from your perspective, what kind of motivated that discussion? Yeah. So, you know, it, it's interesting because I think what I was seeing is that we as we had kind of taken as a given that streaming was making music rights more valuable over the longer term. 
but we were just kind of taking it as a given, right? We were just kind of saying, well, look, I've got, we, we know we can access the entire history of recorded music. And so the greatest music, like there's a, there's a way now to make money off of these things that maybe was only possible via putting out another greatest hits album or things of that nature. And even more than just, yes, there, there were all these, these exciting acquisitions. There was this money coming into the industry suggesting that there was um, institutional view that this was a, an asset class worth, worth investing in. But like nobody had really set out to say, well, what does, what's streaming's value in this? What, what had streaming done to actually change the way the economics work? Not on the, as you put it, Larry, like not on the like year end balance sheet question, but on the like driving the underlying value of the music itself. Um, and so we had been having internal conversations at Demo about how, about kind of, is there an angle, is there something to be looked at in this? And this was even, I think, I think we started the internal conversations like before kind of like the, the height of the acquisition frenzy, just as we started to see this stuff going on started thinking, well, is there a there there? What's the question to be asked? Is there someone we could approach and say like, hey, can you just like go off and look at this and t tell us what you think of it? Um, and we were working with a, a mutual friend of, of ours uh, at the time, Jonathan Lammy, who suggested you should talk to Larry Miller. And so I don't think you and I had actually even met before Jonathan brokered that conversation. And we reached out and I said, hey, like we're trying to figure out if anybody can actually figure out or, or take a crack at really looking at this from an economics lens and taking it seriously and, and trying to put a value on it. I was super intrigued by the question then and uh, became a little, I don't know, not unhealthily obsessed by it over the last year. Not that I knew at the time exactly how to do it. I mean, we sort of danced around this for a while. You know, we knew that there were a few ways to be able to tell the story using numbers wherever possible. And I know that one of the first things that I thought about was, okay, our friend Will Page, former Spotify chief economist Will Page, and now author of, uh, of Tarzan Economics, had done a piece a number of years ago when he was at Spotify that began to address how streaming, how on-demand streaming was starting to change what we think about as the decay curve, right? And how after the initial launch of a record and it reaches its high point on the chart in terms of, you know, sales and consumption, and there is eventually a decline. And if it reaches its way into popular consciousness, it reaches sort of a steady state of continuing sort of discovery and use and licensing. And what Will was pointing to was that there was uh, a dynamic in place in the market that in, in his work, he, the case of Imagine Dragons at that time, to say, look at, you know, this came out, you know, several years before he was writing. And the odd thing about it is that the second 18 months of revenue performance and sales and consumption on Spotify and other places uh, was higher than it was in the first 18 months. That's not the way it's supposed to work, or at least it's not the <laughs> right. way that it had worked when 
music was a product before it became a service over these last 10 years or so. And uh, one of the th questions that Will was raising was, geez, you know, maybe as, a, as an industry, we need to reconsider what we even mean by the definition of what music catalog is, which at that time was, uh, was anything older than two years old. I mean, heck, if Imagine Dragons is streaming more in the second 18 months than the first 18 months, probably there were other cases out there that were, that were also performing better in years two and three than, than during its initial release period. So I wanted to revisit that. And so one of the things mm -hmm. that we looked at was by looking at uh, the Nielsen music data, uh, now known as uh, Luminate data, how many other projects, how many other album projects came out uh, during a recent year and we needed to have three years of data in order to do this, since we were looking at a first 18 months after release and a second 18 months. And the answer was a lot, something just over, I think, 5% of the album projects that had, that had hit the album chart that had come out initially in 2018 did better in the second 18 months than in the first 18 months. And I thought that was a really interesting finding. And we were super excited about that. But that still left the question, how do we parse this whole discussion of value driven by streaming separate from sort of the obvious revenue counting that we do every year? And we, we know that in the United States, for example, we're at something like 84 or so percent of recorded music revenue is, is from streaming generated sources. We understand that. But how do we actually think about value? And I'll tell you that I was thinking hard about this. I was even losing a little <laughs> sleep about it. And, and I mentioned it to a graduate student who's currently in our program, a young guy named Felipe Garrido, who is from Peru. And he entered our program after several years as a government economist in, in Peru. And we struggled a bit with trying to figure out how to create a model for how streaming has impacted the growth of what we were looking at was global music publishing revenues. So in recent transactions, we were looking at NPS or the growth in net publisher share that had occurred over the previous bunch of years. So we had one data set that we looked at that was about as good as a public facing data set as there is to understand prices that were paid in terms of revenue multiples or multiples of net publishers share, which is the amount of money that publishers keep after they pay royalties and, and, and some production costs, but it's basically gross revenue minus writer royalties in, in publishing based on the transactions that had happened during the streaming era of the previous 10 years. And so uh, we were able to use the, the data that David Dunn had put together at Shot Tower Capital, which he publishes uh, each year in his look at uh, recent transactions in the music industry and makes certain forecasts about the way the wind is likely to blow for the foreseeable future. But David had that data and we were able to benefit from that. And then 
we needed to, in terms of creating a model or an equation, if you will, we needed to do some pretty advanced statistical work in order to understand how value as expressed in net publisher share, which was growing as streaming was continuing to grow, was accelerating due to some factors that were clearly related to streaming and others that were related to other activities that publishers undertake on behalf of songwriters that were not related to streaming, and probably other economic factors that were unrelated to either of those things. Or in the, you know, the language of, of statistics and, and linear regressions, we needed to come up with an independent variable that, was, mm-hmm. that could explain some growth or even decline or pressure on net publisher share multiples that altogether would give us a complete picture that would let us explain value created by streaming and other sources. And what we settled on ultimately was interest rates that one can obtain by looking at uh, U.S. Treasury bills. So we looked at treasury bills and we thought we almost had it together then. And (laughs) what we were missing was one really important factor. And that was assuming that, uh, that the buyers in transactions involving music copyrights are taking their best guess at the time the transactions happen of what the future value of those music catalogs is going to be, that we needed to take a look at a forecast that had been repeated over at least several years and looked at how growth rates actually changed after the forecast for a time series. And so we were able to work with our friends at Midyear Research and get a, uh, a four-year period of forecasts and compound annual growth rates that, were, that we were able to drop into this equation and then come with an understanding of where we are actually at in terms of understanding value created by streaming versus other non-streaming sources, uh, at least in music publishing, although we, d- we did look at this on the label side, too, in terms of net label share and recent transactions. And what we came up with was that through transactions that happened last year, 61.5% of the value was, was the result of value created by streaming-related activities. And it may not surprise any musonomics listener, and and I know it didn't surprise you, Garrett, that the recent rise in interest rates has had a limiting or an overhanging effect on value creation. And we were able to calculate what that number was as well. And it's all in the report, which you can download for free on the Musonomics website. So there you have it in terms of the major findings in the report and how we at Musonomics and at NYU Music Business were able to kind of pool our interests and resources and figure out a model for how streaming has created value, at least retrospectively, in music. 
this isn't a forecast. This isn't a Rosetta Stone or a filter through which to view uh, what is likely to happen in the future. It is a way to explain, I think, where he've, where we've been, which I hope will help us better understand how to navigate the uh, at least the near-term future. And one of the things that was incredibly exciting to me about this is like we we had those initial conversations and then you went off and did this. And like then we got back that kind of you had all these conversations, you pulled together these various resources, you did the math, you did like the hard work and then you, you brought it back and we looked at it and we're like, wow, this is this is fascinating. Like we, you know, I think I think it it was a mutually fascinating project because no one quite knew what the answer was going to be or even how to to frame the question. And so it's great. It's exciting to me to hear you talk about the path to get there. I'm curious also like one you know I I loved reading the report. I encourage everyone to read the report. You know, you also, you know, talk a lot about some of the factors that that from your assessment play into why that value has been generated by streaming and looking at, you know, you talked about the decay curve, you end up putting in some of that stuff from Luminate, which is really fascinating data. And thanks to, to the folks at Luminate for, for you know, helping us on, on that part of it. But you also talk about things like the decay curve of other distribution models, the resilience of streaming, those kinds of things. I'm curious, like what jumped out at you as you were putting it together as like, these are some of the building blocks that kind of get to that, 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 61 and a half percent, even if we don't necessarily see it. I think we knew that at the time we actually sat down to start gathering data and writing the report, that we had lived through the worst part of the pandemic by then. And that even though there was sort of an initial wobble in music consumption on the streaming services during that first quarter of the pandemic, that that was quickly overtaken by nothing but growth and that that growth uh, continued and and continues today. We also counted all of the dollars of of I hope smart money uh, that has been plowed into the music business over the last ten years or so, and it is uh, indeed a large number. And I think in terms of just closed transactions for last year in 2021, that number was something above five and a half billion dollars in new investment in in music catalogs. Before we go, I should ask you, what else is on your agenda over this next, let's call it, year or so? Yeah, so not litigating the Fono Records 4 proceeding, which is great. Very exciting about that. We have some other exciting research projects that we've got um, in the pipeline, some that will probably be out sooner rather than later, including some consumer research, some other economic research. We'll be doing some more stuff next year on those themes. A couple areas of interest to the organization that we've been working on some over the last year and going forward includes you know, the real opportunity for collaboration between the services and uh, both the recording industry and the publishing industry around improvements to, to metadata um, and really trying to, you know, th this has been an ongoing vexing issue that a lot of people have put a lot of time and energy into. I think we have some opportunities thanks to, for example, the emergence of the MLC and the, the data that it makes available to really drill down into some of where the, the real problem areas are and away from what had, I think, unfortunately, kind of 
devolved into a, it's all party X's fault and they should just fix it. Um, and so I'm hopeful that we see some progress on that over the, the coming years. But a lot of what we're going to be able to do now is, you know, really find ways to talk about things like what we just talked about, right? Like how is streaming adding value? Where is it adding value? What does it mean for different genres? How are consumers engaging with it? All of that kind of stuff to, to ideally be a resource for everybody in the industry going forward to continue to build off of the, the incredible success that is that has occurred over the last handful of years, while also being mindful of what we talked about before we jumped into this report, which is making sure we are also grappling with the challenges, the, the scale versus individual issues that have always been present in the industry, being mindful that like it really matters that we continue to make music um, and that music continues to be made and continue to be valued. Um, at the same time, it is being consumed and money is being made off of it. So, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an exciting uh, upcoming year. Download our free research report on how streaming has impacted value in the music industry at Musonomics.com. Thanks to our guest, Digital Media Association CEO, Garrett Levin. The Musonomics podcast is a production of Musonomics LLC, strategy consulting and analytics for and about the music industry. This episode was produced at NYU by Alfonso Hernandez. Special thanks to Nishit Singh. From the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt, I'm Larry Miller. Thanks for listening to Musonomics. Stay safe and be well.